1: In defending himself against the silliness of his friends, Job finds himself in error. He becomes righteous in his own eyes. It is the pendulum that swings a bit too far. Elihu brings it back. Centers, we'll see next. Again, we welcome you to today's edition of Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. We're in Job chapter 37. Elihu is about to step off stage as he prepares the way for God himself. The glory cloud approaches is the title of our message. Again, Job chapter 37 is where we catch up with Pastor Gary for today's broadcast of Abounding Grace.
0: There's nothing in the chapters 39 or 40 or 41 that directly answers any of Job's challenges to the Lord. In fact, God's response to Job is to ask him questions that Job can't even answer. The answer that Job has needed in terms of sounder doctrine and humbler wisdom, Elihu as already given to him and remember Eli whose answer was god righteously governs our lives our circumstances and he sends afflictions to correct our faults and to warn us away from the judgment that is to come even godly men need this work of god very much in their lives So we should be quick to confess our faults and also to understand that we are far more sinful than we can even imagine. So we've got to trust the wise governor of our lives without despair and without doubt. Job has been quiet before Elihu. His agitated mind, I think, is beginning to be settled But his core well-being, his soul, needs to be restored. He has been also deeply wounded by his own foolishness on the one hand, by Satan on the other hand, and by God's afflictions in his life. And he needs to be brought back to his original confession. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. In other words, he needs to be brought back before God's majesty where he recognizes your God and I am not. And I love you and I want to know you and worship you no matter what happens to me. So reading this barrage of questions... Some have numbered them in the 40s. That God asked Job, we're not going to find here that God has said, Okay, Job, I cry, uncle. I'm going to let you come in and debate with me. There's nothing of that here. God does not place himself on trial for Job's examination or for yours or mine. He never explains His actions to Job, as we have noted repeatedly throughout our study, for the main reason that Job is not capable of understanding God's dealings with him, and neither are we. Just let that sink in. We are incapable of understanding God's dealings with us. We see, as one of the verses in Job says, only the outskirts of God's ways. Just the outskirts, the very edge. But in terms of God saying, okay, Chris, okay, Stephen, okay, Lizzie, I'm going to explain everything I've been doing to you so that all of your questions are answered. No. Only blind men, only rebels think about a relationship with God in terms of God answering all of our questions and explaining all of His dealings with us. In fact, God brings His children more to the place where we don't want answers as much as we just want Him and a fellowship with Him and to rest in His providence. Now, Job, as we have seen throughout our study, have asked the Lord many, many questions, as we often do when trouble comes to us. So it is the Lord's turn to question Job now. In this series of questions, he reveals to Job a weight of glory that leaves Job utterly overwhelmed. We might say that the basic point of all these questions is just to remind Job of one thing. Job, I'm God, and you are not. This is one of the first and most valuable basic lessons of faith. It's not our place to question and stand in judgment of the Lord's ways and works, or even to think ourselves competent to do so. Instead, we should be deeply humbled before the Lord and recognize that he is God and we're not. And if we are humbled like that, then we will learn to trust him and to seek our good in him and to worship him in the beauty of his holiness alone. There are several points before we get into the details of the chapter that I would really like to make at the outset about God's questioning of Job. And his resolution in one respect of of Job's misery. Notice first, he appeals, he he speaks to Job. And this is a great mercy. God speaks to Job. More than anything else, remember what David said in Psalm 28.1. Lord, if you be silent with me, I'm like one who goes down to the pit. I may as well be dead. So the Lord does speak to Job. When we are before him. Silence is really golden. But with respect to him when he is silent to us. It is deadly my friends. So we need God to speak to us. We were made to live and to be at peace by hearing God's voice. Now. Now. When God does speak to us, we should never expect Him to say, You are never as bad as you think you are. Let me try and help you understand things better. Or, I'm not as perplexing as you may think. Or, or, here's the way for you to have an easier life. That is not what the Lord says to us. This is just foolish thinking. When he speaks to us in many respects, he has no intentions of removing our confusion by answering our foolish questions and making us feel better. Instead, he speaks to us, listen, to humble us and teach us that he is God and we are his children and that our security lies in trusting his wisdom And his providence in our lives. So it's a great mercy. When God comes and puts us in our place. Let that sink in. It is a great mercy. When God comes and puts us in our place. It is a great mercy. When he shakes up the circumstances of our lives. So that we are scratching our heads and thinking. You know what? I'm not really in control of things. Life really isn't about the map that I've laid out for my life. That really isn't what my life is about. God is God and I am not. Beloved, that is a great mercy. I think another thing we need to observe here is that while God's glory unsettles us, as it did Job... God's glory is unsettling. But on the other hand, it settles us. I know that seems to be a bit of a conundrum. But what have we been made for? We have been made for the praise and the glory of God's grace. So for ungodly men, this won't make them very happy. For the godly what? We want to give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. We want to worship Him in the beauty of holiness. So for us, it's not a question of having all of our questions answered. We don't want independence from God, right? You know, that's why men say, I won't believe in God until He answers all my questions or satisfies all of my scientific curiosity or philosophical ideas. Most of the time when men talk like this, they are really actually saying, I want to be insulated from a God that I can't understand and I can't control. And the living God says, there is no other God but the God who already controls all of your life, whom you cannot understand and of whom you cannot or ever will be able to control. So God's glory... When we do recognize this, settles us. Uh, There is no peace for the wicked because they won't submit to God and they don't learn to rejoice in their total dependence upon him like us. The Lord reveals his glory to Job in order to remind him, stop demanding that I explain things to you, Job. Just trust me. My ways and my word, my will is too high for you. And if you want peace, Job, if you want peace, surrender to me. Trust me. Remember who I am. You know, that's one of the best things that the Lord does for all of his children. And I hope he has done it for each one of us more than once, and that is to shatter our delusions by showing us who we truly are before him. He, he did this to Peter. He, he crushed Peter, but Peter didn't say, hey, Lord, could you crush my pride too? I, I really need for you to. Peter resisted that until the very end, but it was a relief when the Lord looked at him and revealed Peter's true heart to him. The word of the Lord came to Peter again, and what did Peter learn? He learned to distrust himself and depend upon the strength of the Lord alone. And he also learned that the Lord knew him better than he could ever know himself And the Lord is going to teach those lessons to Job now. Why? Because he loved his servant. Don't ever forget this. God loved Job. God had never forgotten, as we see in our study of Job thus far, his initial challenge of Satan. Satan, have you looked at my servant Job? He loves me. He is a godly man. He fears me. Have you forgotten him? In one respect, we speak as men here, in that God was proud of Job. He threw him into Satan's teeth, but on the other hand, in dealing with Job personally, the Lord says, you know what? I do love Job very much, but I need to humble him because I need to teach him that his peace and his security are not in his riches. Not in his daily sacrifices, not in his commendable deeds that were all good, but it is in bowing before my majesty and in my government of his life. Now, the chapter opens here, and again, when we break, this is the in chapter headings. It is really just one continuous speech here of God. Now, we can't cover this all in one sermon, so... Just remember how this message came to Job. It came out of a tempest. It was fast and furious that the Lord is saying these things and asking these questions to Job in a whirlwind. I'm sure Job thought about the questions long and hard in the years ahead. But at the moment, it was just like a weight of God's glory being thrust upon job we can't know for sure whether god spoke audible to job or to his soul in a way that he knew it was the lord it seems clear though from what we studied in the previous chapters that elihu and job and his three friends at least saw the whirlwind approaching and that it was not just a vision But I do think Elihu and Job's three friends heard God's word audibly. But we need to remember that even if God didn't speak audibly, but spoke in a way that Job knew that it was the Lord, this is the way we must approach the scriptures and the preaching of God's word as if God opened the heavens and came down to us in some visible manifestation and spoke to us so that we hear his voice. We need to treat God's word with veneration, beloved. God's first question to Job sets the tone for this whole thing. Who is this? Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now, Even though Elihu was the last speaker, most commentators see this rightly as referring to Job, because Job is the one, not Elihu, who has been foolishly questioning God and craving a debate with him. And it's humbling to see God treat his servant in this way. So let this sink in the next time your life is a little bit rough around the edges and You're tempted to think, wait a minute, I thought God loved me. God treated Job a little rough to our way of thinking, but God still loved Job. And by the way, each one of us, when we go through difficult times and we are despairing and we're questioning, this would be a pretty good question to apply to our own hearts. Who am I? And the answer, my friends, is really pretty simple. I am nothing. I can't even understand the outskirts of God's ways. I don't know anything as I should know it, and I need God to even teach me my name. I'm so stupid. And unless we feel keenly about our weaknesses and our stupidity before the Lord, we are never, never going to profit from his word. I mean, why should we come and listen to God's word preached or commit ourselves to the reading of it every day? Well, it's not because I'm an intellectual, so this is the way that I keep those little gray cells in their proper form. No, we come to God's word because I am nothing. I have nothing. God must teach me every day or I will go astray. The Lord says here to Job, Job, enough of your questions. It's my turn. Notice in verse 3, he says, answer my questions and gird up your loins. That is the old King James way of saying, Job, be a man. Now, this is terrifying and it is humbling. We always need to be very careful in the way we talk to the Lord. Remember, Job has already said we can't answer him in chapter 9, verse 3. He said, the Lord said, and how can we answer God one in a thousand? We cannot answer him Remember, Elihu said in chapter 37 last week, Job, are you going to tell him that I've been talking? Why? Because we've got to be very, very careful. The sorts of questions that God asks Job reveal, listen, that we are incapable of understanding his majesty and his government in the natural world. He says, you can't understand what I'm doing in nature, so how can you possibly understand or question my moral government of men? If we are ignorant of, well, who is the father of the rain? And if we are ignorant of, where do all the treasures of the snow come from? If we can't understand this, then we can't possibly understand God's dealings with our own souls. In verses 4 through 11, he speaks of his astonishing glory in the earth, heaven, and in the seas. He says, Job, you are finite. Verse 4, you were not here when I laid the foundations of the world. Job, you have to use tools when doing simple carpentry. And palaces and castles take you years to construct. So how can you lay the measuring line upon this huge universe? Verse 5, have you laid the line upon it? Job, do you understand, verse 6, where the foundations are fastened or laid the cornerstone at the very beginning when the stars and the angels sang and shouted for joy? As for the sea, verses 8 through 11, the Lord says, Job, were you there when I shut it up in its door? When I ornamented the seas, verse 9, with clouds for a garment over them and put the darkness underneath to uphold it? Verses 10 and 11, when I set the bars and the doors of the ocean and the streams, were you there? When I said to them, verse 11, you'll come this far, but no further, were you there? Now, science has looked at all these things, but it's not penetrated the untold mysteries of the sea. God knows them all. And the more we learn of God's work in the ocean and in the heavens, the more we should tremble before him. These are commonplace observances in many respects. Wonders that poets and scientists and philosophers have long heralded and contemplated in study. But unless we see these things as wonders of God and of his hand, it's only going to increase our arrogance rather than our humility. You know, it's, it's kind of like the Jews in John 6 The way they handled the loaves. Uh, Jesus did a tremendous miracle in feeding all of these tens of thousands of people. Men, women, and children. And they all went away with full stomachs, right? They handled the miraculous loaves, but they went away with empty souls. Full stomachs, but empty souls. And this is the way rebels are when they handle God's works. Or they may study them. They may be amazed by them. But God's works do not lead them to tremble before the Lord and to seek their good in him, which is what we should all be doing. In verses 12 to 21, we see more of God's questioning pertaining to the light and the darkness and the depths. Have you commanded the mornings? He asked Job. He says, have you directed the dawn when it takes a hold of the earth? You know, men feel usually very renewed in the morning. Very refreshed when the sun rises. But oftentimes, they're blind to the true grace and mercy that God shows to us in that. They also forget that light is covenantal. Did you realize that light is covenantal? God calls there to be light every day. Without that call, there is no light. Verse 13, and he does it to shake the wicked up. Remember, Jesus said in John 3, verse 20, that evil men love darkness because their deeds are evil. They don't like the light. It says in verse 14 that the light leaves an immediate impression upon the clay of this earth. Light is more, however, than just natural phenomena. Because in verse 15, God withholds the light from the wicked and breaks their arm. Because men will not use the light to serve God, then he will remove its blessing, influence, and expose their evil deeds.